Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. To get you through the holiday week, check out theringer.com for our July streaming recommendations, analysis on the U.S. women's national team during the World Cup, and takeaways from an exciting start to NBA free agency. Also, we'll be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows throughout the week as usual. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Recapables, a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, we are talking about everyone's favorite 80s nostalgia fest, Stranger Things. We are doing a bit of a mini-series on this. We are tackling the whole season, which is eight episodes in three installments of this podcast. One will obviously be releasing today on July 4th, and we will have two additional episodes on July 5th and July 6th to go along with your binge. We know that everyone has a lot of ample time and air conditioning on this long holiday weekend, and we are here with you as you spend it on television. I am your host, Allison Herman, and here with me on the other line, he is ready to set sail on this ocean of flavor. It's Miles Surrey. Hey, Miles, how are you doing? I'm good. I've got Tostitos, salsa, beer, and I'm ready to go. You're kicked back on your lazy boy, just mm-hmm. digging got into Got Magnum some. P.I. in the VCR. <laughs> So that is, of course, a reference to our favorite character on the show, Chief Hopper, played by our favorite Twitter personality, David Harbour. We will be talking about him in great detail later in this episode. But first, this is the third season of Stranger Things. It is billed in the manner of a great 80s franchise as Stranger Things 3. We've had some time to get used to this show. It is basically as old as the website we work for at this point, which is a little strange because it's obviously a show about kids. But we do a segment on The Recapables just to talk about why we love this show enough to dedicate hours of podcasting time to it. So, Miles, what is your relationship with Stranger Things? Well, I mean, who doesn't love the 80s? (laughs) Um, I, I just, I don't feel like Stranger Things had a ton of fanfare going into it when that first season dropped. But it was pretty clear, you know, before it came out, like, hey, we're doing this sort of nostalgic nostalgic blend of, like, 80s-era Amblin Entertainment stuff, like E.T. and the Goonies, some John Carpenter thrown in. And, you know, I like you, I wasn't an 80s kid, but my parents made sure to funnel a lot of that good 80s stuff down my throat growing up. So I was totally on board with it before it even came out. It's great that it became a big hit, although uh, I wasn't as crazy about the second season, I think. That was the sign where a lot of people don't realize this, but the Duffer Brothers originally intended to make this an anthology series. And I feel like the cracks kind of showed in the second season. But, um, you know, I'm still a sucker for the nostalgia. I don't need Stranger Things to be an Emmy nominee. It just needed to be fun. So I feel like the third season so far has sort of lived up to that. Yeah, you bring up, I think, a necessary caveat we have to make just in the interest of full transparency to our listeners, which is that I don't believe that anyone working on this podcast, you, I, or our producer, Evan Campbell, was born in the 1980s. So (laughs) none of us are speaking from firsthand experience, although I actually think that's sort of appropriate to the show because Stranger Things isn't really like about the 80s or set in the 80s so much as it is about the idea of an iconography of the 80s. It really wears its references on its sleeve and it's very proud to be part of that sort of remix culture. And I think, you know, for people like you or I who grew up on VHS tapes that represented the 80s to us, we have a very firm idea of it. We have experience with the pop culture that the show is is working with, but, you know, we're we're not fact-checking it. And it's also not like, you know, you and I both love the show Halt and Catch Fire. If you want, like, a more <laughs> granular, you know, period detail version of what it was like to be, like, an adult doing adult things in the 80s, that's where you go. But for now, 
I think one thing that this season really has going for it is that it does change the setting at least a little bit and that we are now in like full-blown summer fun 80s lifeguard mall culture. Like they it's summertime in the mid-80s and it feels a little different and it feels like the show is kind of working with a different toolbox of aesthetic things to pull from. Do you agree with that? Oh yeah, definitely. And I think it also reflects um the character the young cast because you know I don't know if you had a chance to watch like any of the first two seasons when you're prepping, but it's so jarring to see how little the kids looked in like the first and second seasons. And they're back. They're a lot bigger. They're ganglier. They're teenagers. And I think the show also reflects those interests, too, because there's, you know, a lot more stuff with just like dating and the new upside down is puberty, maybe. (laughs) That's a great tagline, Miles. So this actually brings me to my tweet-length review, which is another segment we do on the Mm recapitals of the season, which is literally just quoting a line that is repeated multiple times for emphasis, lest we did not get it the first time throughout these first three episodes, which is what we're discussing on this episode, which is, I don't know if you've heard this, but the Stranger Things crew aren't kids anymore. They're teenagers, so they hang out in malls accordingly. So, like, literally 20 minutes into this first episode, Winona Ryder's Joyce Byers is talking to David Harbour's Chief Hopper, And they're basically just bonding over how hard and annoying it is to deal with, like, hormone monsters, especially in Harbor's case, you know, one of them has superpowers. And, you know, they're dealing with not cute, necessarily cute kids anymore. They're rebellious. They're independent. There's a really sad scene where Joyce comes home and neither of her sons are there because they're, you know, kind of autonomous. They can go out and do stuff in the world. And... There's obviously a meta respect to that as the show itself pulls into its maturity and adolescence. But yeah, they are dealing with the whole fact that their child actors are not children anymore. And I got to say, like, we just saw Game of Thrones kind of navigate the rocky waters of maybe the child performers that you cast and grow into the strongest adult performers. But this is like a, a solid cast. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think they have a weak link. I feel like um, probably the most pleasant surprise is Noah Schnapp, you know, because he was basically relegated to a, you know, a pretty much a nothing role in the first season because he just goes off and disappears. But uh, the cast, you know, from Millie Bobby Brown down to him, they've been terrific. And I think, I mean, that's pretty important because, you know, when you have a show that, you know, a, a child character is an important part of it and it doesn't work out, Look, looking at you, Carl Grimes from The Walking Dead. Sorry, bud. Um, it can, you know, it can kind of throw off the whole show, but I think they're all great. They've been, you know, like, I, I don't think we're going to get to a point like with the first season where Millie Bobby Brown got an Emmy nomination, but like, these are all solid performances. Yeah, I totally agree. So before we move on to digging into a little more detail the rest of the season, Miles, what was your just straight up tweet length review of the first three episodes? Yeah, Stranger Things is back and it's hotter than Phoebe Cates. Again, just to reflect the whole adolescent thing, Dustin supposedly has a girlfriend from science camp. Dustin's girlfriend goes to another school. (laughs) Yeah. She's uh, Mormon and uh, is hotter than Phoebe Cates. Yeah, that's that's about all we know. Uh, What do you think? Is she real? (laughs) Lives in Utah, does not have a phone. Yeah. I think she is real. I do think the whole I don't have a phone was maybe a like gentle way of dun- dumping Dustin and not having to deal with a long distance relationship. I just think like hiking up to the middle of a hill with your makeshift radio that you also call Cerebro. You know, if <laughs> if he didn't think that there was someone on the other end of the line, that's like very embarrassing to put your friends through. But 
you know, we've all we've all had that experience of young summer love that we don't want to end. And, you know, they didn't have texting or FaceTime or any of those things in the 1980s. So it's a tough beat for Dustin, but he'll always have his Camp Nowhere, K-N-O-W <laughs> wear baseball cap to rock as an accessory. Toughest beat is honestly for Will, because he's the only one who just wants to play D&D and hang out like the old days. In a sick outfit, by the way, just like a full-blown wizard cosplay. I just... What a fit. <laughs> we just need to get him to like a Comic-Con type situation so he can meet an equally nerdy girl. Um, I'm sure that will happen for him. Or maybe he doesn't want to meet anyone. Yeah. Is he asexual? I think like we're sort of getting that vibe, which is interesting. I frankly do not think Stranger Things is woke enough to enter into the asexual <laughs> discourse a la BoJack Horseman. But we respect Will and all of his choices and we love and support him. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But first... We are going to introduce a segment for the Stranger Things Recapables that we're just going to call Villain Watch because I think one of Stranger Things' biggest obstacles has been that they don't really define the villain except, like, upside-down, bad, goo, gross-looking. And, you know, we had a preview piece going into the season written by Megan Schuster that's just called What Does the Monster in Stranger Things Want? That is a great piece that just deals with the fact that it's kind of hard to grow up and become more sophisticated and nuanced without making the villain any richer. And, you know, part of the appeal of Stranger Things is that it's so simple. And it's interesting to watch them, you know, navigate that line. But we actually did see a few new developments, both in the actual upside-down Mind Flayer-type antagonist, but also new villains that have been introduced in the flesh-and-blood human world. So what was your thought on how Stranger Things has handled making its villains maybe a little bit more sophisticated in season three? Honestly, I love it, because it's also, I think, a reflection of the show handling a bit more of, like, mature 80s stuff, if that makes sense. Like, you get a bit of more of a... Uh, James Cameron vibe with the action because like there's basically a Russian Terminator now. <laughs> um, obviously, Red Dawn is another big one um, that the show is is like gleefully playing off of. And I feel like, uh, you know, whomever is playing that Russian Terminator dude, he's got to be cast in the next John Wick movie if he hasn't shown up already. He's He'd be perfect for that. And I'm curious to see what they do with the other, like the kind of Russian scientist dude who's like, you got the promotion because I just choked out this other dude to death. But yeah, Russian Taron Edgerton, I'll call him. Uh, I'm curious what he's going to be up to this season. Yeah, I do think that was like an interesting progression. The Netflix really, really wanted to keep the involvement of the Russians oh, yes. under lock and key. <laughs> so a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain. We got a very, very long list of spoilers that we were not allowed to disclose ahead of time. Obviously, the season's out in the world, so we can get into all its spoiler glory. But, the, you know, the Russians are literally the very first scene. We see them foolishly trying to rip open the gate to the Upside Down. We find out at the end of the scene, this is like literally in Russia, although eventually they find their way to Hawkins, Indiana. And that was one of the things that Netflix was like, don't say that there are <laughs> Russians, even though that is quite literally how the season opens. So they wanted to keep it low-key. I think the surprise is pretty well handled. It's the 80s, so I feel like you have to get into the Cold War and Cold War paranoia at some point. Um, we'll see if they actually, like, flesh any of the Russians out beyond just cartoon villains. I do think another really smart move this season makes is that the monster has always just been this mute, it wants because it wants and all it wants is to take over the world and expand. And that's still clearly its motivation, but by having it possess Billy... 
it gives it a voice. And we now have this incarnation of the Mind Flayer that is kind of like colonizing and taking over. First, we see all the rats in Hawkins are eating fertilizer and up to no good. And then it drags Billy and kind of makes him its avatar and starts expanding to, you know, his co-lifeguard Heather and then her parents. And you can see how this can get very, very bad very, very quickly. But it means that because there are humans who are the middleman between the Mind Flayer and everyone else, it's, you know, at least a little more like a person or a personality that is specific, which is something that this villain, I think, has really been lacking up until now. Yeah, because it's sort of been like uh, a similar issue with the Night King in Game of Thrones where it's like, this thing doesn't talk. It just destroys what what's the purpose of any of this. Obviously, with Game of Thrones, we just never really found out what the White Walkers wanted, but this is a chance to have a more clearly defined goal. I also like that they're using Billy as the avatar because obviously like having like a jerky, douchey lifeguard is like kind of a fun 80s trope, but it's kind of interesting to see him sort of thrust into the main narrative in in a much more meaningful well meaningful way too. Um, obviously, whatever happens with Billy, uh, I I highly doubt he's gonna come out of this uh, season looking good if he even comes out at all. Yeah, considering what we saw happen to the rats who are also possessed by the mind flare, yeah. you know, one of them just like explodes into goop and like starts sliding around. It's like a giant booger. It's very unappealing. But you know, if that ends up happening to other uh, proxies for the Mind Flayer, I could see Billy, you know, not really... I don't think things are going to go great for him either way. Uh, He's already, you know, having, like, weird vertigo episodes by the pool and fantasizing about maybe murdering Mike's mom. So just keep an eye out. But I, I do think that's, like, a good step forward for the show. Also, the Upside Down quite literally tells him, let's build, which is a nice little bit of 2019 lingo. Just slipped into this 80s show. (laughs) Um, So we're just going to move on. As you mentioned, you know, the characters are older now. They are now very preoccupied with relationships and not maybe dealing with in the most mature way because this is all of their first romance. But we're just going to have a little check-in segment that we're going to call Do We Ship It? about the various couplings, and we're just going to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down about how we feel about their longevity. First and foremost, Mike and Elle have been, you know, the cutesy young love through line of this entire series, and their dynamic is now a little different because Elle appears to be in control of her powers and also kind of a normal kid. Like, she can talk, she has long hair, it's a lot less like the rest of the crew just teaching her how to be a person and a lot more her figuring things out for herself. Yeah, although I'm personally a thumbs down on their relationship because I feel like Mike's still treating her more like a pet that he controls than a girlfriend. So uh, in in that sense, I do sympathize with Hopper. I mean, he he's more worried about them just <laughs> making out in, in her bedroom, but um, it's hard to enforce parenting rules on a telekinetic child. And it is a little absurd that Mike thinks he needs to like have this total domain over her when she's obviously like a fully realized character. Yeah, they are literally spending morning tonight with one another. Like they say goodbye, they are talking to each other on walkie-talkies and Mike is like I will see you first thing tomorrow. That is not healthy. Yeah, that and then he's like, we- "Oh, why are you at the mall?" You're like, "You're not allowed to, to, supposed to be in front of big crowds." And it's just like, you know, let her live a little, dude. Yeah, he's not going to learn this term until like many years later in therapy, but this is what we call codependent. <laughs> 
But yeah, like Hopper also doesn't deal with this in the best way and just basically threatens Mike. But Mike, instead of being mature or just reasonable and telling Elle that this is what's happening, just proceeds to panic and lie to her about his sick grandma. She is not stupid and therefore picks up on it and kind of turns to Max for solace because Max and Lucas have their own on-again, off-again situation going on. But they have an interesting discussion where Elle is coming to terms with how, you know, being in a relationship with someone doesn't always mean that they're honest with you. And then he said he he missed me. And then he just hung up. He's a piece of shit. What? Mike doesn't have jack shit to do today, and his Nana obviously isn't sick. I guarantee you, him and Lucas are playing Atari right now. But friends don't lie. Yeah, well, boyfriends lie. So, yeah, that's some wisdom from Max, I would say. No, Ma- Max is definitely the the smartest of the bunch. Although, uh, how do you feel about her and Lucas's relationship? I mean, she's clearly learned how to play him like a harpsichord. I just think it's funny how they clearly have this whole background where they've just been like breaking up and getting back together, which means that Lucas is in a position to tell Mike how to navigate a fight and try to go to the mall and buy a $3.50 apology <laughs> gift, which was very cute. I mean, obviously, this is not going to last, but I'm also not especially worried for either of them, if that makes sense. Like, you know, we all need our first, like, stupid relationship. It doesn't feel like either of them are as, like, totally invested in it as either Mike or Elle is in theirs. Yeah, it seems healthier in that respect, too, because they're not just, like, you know, planning each other's days and when they're going to see each other, like, from morning to to dusk. But um, I'm also, you know... On the personal side, I'm very anti-PDA. I'm just like, don't do this in front of people. And I, I'm glad that they're not a, a very PDA couple. So I, I support them. Thumbs up. Yes, this is true. I mean, it's also, they're clearly one of those relationships that like almost has as much fun fighting and being mad at each other and kind of going to their respective corners and bitching to their friends. Like you can tell Max is just really excited to have someone that she can share in this, ugh, like guys suck kind of way, um, which leads to L, you know, eavesdropping on Mike and Lucas, which is maybe not the best or most responsible use of her superpowers. But, you know, we'll we'll talk about that <laughs> a little more, I'm sure, as the season progresses. By the way, I assume that's what the Russians want the Upside Down for, because, like, if you could have Elle's powers to spy on anyone, like, imagine using it to, like, I don't know, peek in on the White House or something. Yeah, I feel like this is something we are really owed an explanation for. I'm sure the answer is they think they can harness it as a weapon because that's always what anyone wants anything for and it never works out that way. But, you know, why do the Russians think it's a great idea to open a portal to another dimension that just wants to take over our dimension? And, uh, you know, you saw what happened to those guys in the gas masks in the opening scene. Does this seem like something we want to mess with? (laughs) I'm not sure. But speaking of the Russians and the investigation into them, Steve has graduated high school and is now working at a nautical-themed ice cream shop at the brand-new Starcourt Mall in Hawkins, which has destroyed all small businesses, but has at least introduced him to what appears to be his love interest for the season, Robin, who is played by Maya Hawk, who is, of course, the daughter of Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman. And oh my God, does she look like Uma Thurman? It is. She alarming. also sounds like her, too. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like because of her last name, people have been playing the Ethan Hawk's daughter thing a little more going in. But like, that is her mom is all I can see when I look at her. It's so wild. But, you know, obviously she works as kind of like a human piece of 80s and 90s nostalgia. Yeah. But her role in the season is 
She seems to be like a little bit of a deadbeat. She's younger than Steve and still in high school, but not cool, but also not like a nerd. She just kind of seems to march to the beat of her own drum. I have the feeling that she's probably going to like go to NYU or something and find herself and find her tribe. But until now, she's she's scooping mint chip for our, our buddy Erica. So, yeah, Erica really loves those free samples. My God. But um, yeah, I, I I do like Robin. I'm not sure because I feel like the show um, ha- likes to sort of mess with Steve. So I wonder if like, like I do ship it, but I wonder if anything's actually going to happen. Yeah, I do think it was interesting that so Steve and Dustin are paired off as they were last season. They have the special relationship and Dustin overhears what appears to be a Russian signal on his giant radio. So he doesn't get in touch with his girlfriend, but he does find, you know, the the latest mystery for the kids to dive into. And she just immediately is like, yeah, I'm all in. I mean, she clearly she's bored. She wants something to do, to do with her time. That's yeah, not I mean, they don't have internet. It's not like she could check Twitter between scoops. <laughs> Yeah, but there's not even, like, you guys are dorks. There's no bit of, like, credulity. She's just immediately like, yes, I'm totally down to decode this Russian signal. She also speaks four languages. I don't know. I'm kind of getting the feeling that she's a little too good for Steve, at least as he currently exists. Obviously, he's no longer, like, a cartoon 80s villain. But I think he kind of needs to to work to deserve her. That's where I'm at on their flirtation. No, I agree. I thought Dustin gave some surprisingly woke advice where he's like, you know, you got to get past these social constructs, man. You like her. Just just like who cares what she is? And also like she's she's like maybe she she plays like whatever, like the clarinet or whatever in band. But she's cool. Like, come on, Steve. It's not that hard. I mean, there's also just the great line where Steve is like, did you learn that in science camp or whatever? And Dustin's like, <laughs> no, that's shit I learned from life. Yeah, so, that was brutal. <laughs> yeah, that was really tough. But, you know, we should probably also check Dustin and his fake girlfriend. I feel like we've addressed this, but yeah, I feel let like Dustin we're... live. Exactly. I feel like, you know, he had a beautiful experience. He maybe needs to let it go. Maybe, you know, getting caught up in the upside down shenanigans again will help him. Before we move on to an adult relationship, why don't we just talk about Will and this fascinating dynamic he has with Lucas and Mike where, you know, they're obviously caught up in their girlfriend troubles. Will decides to maybe overcorrect for this a little bit and stage a very elaborate D&D campaign complete with boombox and wizard cosplay. And it doesn't work and culminates with a very sad scene where he literally demolishes Castle Byers with a baseball bat. But I thought this was one of the more sensitive and nuanced dynamics that the season hits on, which is not everyone matures at the same pace. And there can be a really, really tough reckoning when your friends are in relationships or even just interested in pursuing relationships and you're not at that place yet and you still want to cling to not necessarily childish things, but you want to hang out with your friends and people drifting apart and maturing at different rates is is tough to watch, you know? Yeah, and I mean, that's all happening and that's tough. And he's also, you know, he's the one who senses like, he's got that sort of prickly feeling in his neck whenever the mind flares back. So he's sort of dealing with that serious trauma from the first two seasons as well. So, I mean, Will's going through a lot, man. So I hope hope he finds some people to play D&D with him because I'm sure he put together a really nice campaign. We're going to be talking about residual buyer's trauma a little more in our next (laughs) segment. But first, we need to talk about Billy and Mrs. Wheeler. Yeah. A connection that was tragically cut short by his demonic possession. But before then, we get a very steamy 
pool scene. I would argue that no man is worth wearing a full freaking face of makeup when you're just trying to do the backstroke at the community pool. Yeah, but- so would would the makeup come off? Like, how, how does how does makeup work, Allison? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to be able to explain this to you on mic. I mean, their waterproof makeup exists. I did notice the one time we see her swimming, her face is, like, very carefully kept outside of the pool. I mean, it's also, like some truly wild, bright blue eyeshadow. It's not like no makeup makeup. It's very clear that she decided to get dolled up. And there's a very funny scene where like all the housewives of Hawkins who were bored are just waiting on bated breath for the female lifeguard to switch out so Billy can like lustily stare at them and fondle his whistle or whatever. But, you know, they have this flirtation. They're clearly headed to, you know, a a quote unquote private swim lesson at the Motel 6. Best workout of her life. Oh, I bet. Uh, Billy is run off the road, obviously. And apparently Mrs. Wheeler has a, you know, coming of conscience and decides to stay home. Also, do you always forget that Mike and Nancy technically have a younger sister? I just was like, who is a small child? Also, has she grown in three seasons? I feel like she's been the same age the whole time. I have no idea. I mean, like her literal job. Also, for all I know, she could be a full Bobby Draper situation and just be switched out for a different actress. And I would just have (laughs) absolutely no memory. But, you know, her whole function this episode is to unconsciously like remind her mom that she is a family and should maybe not cheat on her husband with a... Um, I guess Billy's probably out of high school and technically an adult, but still teenage. At least he's 18, so it is legal. But yeah, I'm glad that... um... Mrs. Wheeler, you know, she went with her conscience there. And obviously, considering what happened to Billy, uh, I mean, it could have been bad if they still met up and then she'd also be like a a mind flayer zombie. Yeah, legal but not moral. I would just like to say that there is clearly some aspect of Mrs. Wheeler that is not fulfilled or satisfied. I just hope she, like, finds a job, goes to couples therapy with her husband, like, fixes whatever's going on with her so she doesn't feel the need to stray. But, you know, speaking of parents who are kind of going through it and not really able to deal with their emotions in a fully mature way, we are dedicating an entire segment to Chief Hopper because he is our personal favorite character on the show. No shade to Elle or Dustin or anyone else. But we're just going to call this the dad bod corner where we're going to check <laughs> in with his attempts to be a parent again, having, you know, tragically lost his daughter before we meet him in the series, of course. But this is clearly his first time parenting a full-blown teenage girl and obviously a teenage girl with superpowers who can telekinetically slam the door when she is making out with her boyfriend. So how do we feel Hopper is doing as a parent at this point in the season? Uh, I'll give him a solid B- minus for effort. Um, <laughs> you know, fair. yeah, I, I mean, because he clearly he cares. It's not like he he's just sort of slacking off like he wants to be a good parent to 11. He just does not to do it. I think it's a, it's a good sign that he's he's asking for help with Joyce. Probably not as great of a sign that he's trying to ask her out on a date while she's clearly a little traumatized from what happened to poor Bob. Um, but you yeah, know, he's, notice he's how trying. they are. <laughs> notice how they are like pointedly showing flashbacks and drawings of Bob so that they don't repeat the whole like Barb debacle of season yeah. one, <laughs> where it's like you just murdered this person and no one is paying attention. Um, like, but we yeah, get it. I, Justice for Bob, it's happening. Exactly. So, you know, he, I think also for good reason, he wants Ellen and Mike to spend a little less time together. He senses that it's not healthy, but the way he expresses it is this weird, like, 
inchoate rage slash jealousy. Joyce is like, you can't force them to break up. That's not how this works. Also, if you tell teenagers anything, they're just going to rebel. And so his workaround is to lie to Mike about his grandma and then, you know, give him give him a stern talking to in his car. You're crazy. Crazy. You want to see a real crazy? You disrespect me again. Okay. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna drive you home. And I'm gonna speak. And you're going to listen. And then maybe, maybe by the end of it, maybe if you're lucky, maybe I will continue to allow you to date my daughter. That's some real classic stay the fuck away from my daughter shit. <laughs> it is. I, again, like you said before, though, I still don't get why Mike wouldn't just tell Eleven this because clearly he has no problem making fun of Hopper. So why can't he be like, yeah, your dad threatened me, man. Like, that's why I had to leave. Yeah, I think he kind of put the fear of God in him in a little bit. Yeah. And also, maybe some some part of Mike also senses that distance might be healthy and he just doesn't really know how to talk about it because he is a 14-year-old boy and therefore, you know, incapable of handling anything correctly. But back to Hopper. Um, we get a little glimpse of what the kind of like pseudo bachelor lifestyle is like for him <laughs> while Mike and Eleven are sequestered away. He's eating some Tostitos, a little bit of like 80s fast food going on, just uh, reclining in his lazy boy and drinking beer and watching Magnum P.I. It's great. Um, my favorite thing is when he is shopping for his like pseudo date with Joyce that he asked her out on to like discuss parenting stuff. I don't know. It was very Look, poorly it's handled. Enzo's. It's a great restaurant. He just wanted to have a nice meal. It's not a date. But he asked her out <laughs> by being like, let's get dinner. It's not a date. And then she's like, what are you talking about? I think Joyce is being a little dense about what's going on here as well. Yes. But then uh, Hopper prepares by purchasing a wonderful kind of like beigey patterned, not quite Hawaiian, but like extremely dad shirt. Yeah, straight out of Miami Vice. I mean, it was quite a look. He refers to it as cutting edge fashion and (laughs) wears it with a, you know, lovely kind of pale tweedy blazer blazer to this Italian restaurant where Joyce promptly stands him up. Yeah, I I love though how he was trying so hard to be fancy. He ordered a scotch and then a chi ante that he thought sounded good. Because um, he was like, women like cherries, huh? And the waiter's like, mm-hmm. And, you know, he got a little plastered. He ate a ton of free breadsticks, got soot up. Um, can't say I condone the behavior, but Hopper is probably the most relatable character on the show. So I, I support him in all his dad bod endeavors. Yes, I would say also the secondary Hopper fit of the week is when he is like yelling at Joyce. Joyce is like, you're not paying attention to me. My magnets don't work. And therefore, I'm convinced that something nefarious is going on, which she's right. But we don't know that yet. Uh, Hopper is rocking this like incredible graphic towel (laughs) underneath his police jersey. And it's just incredible. And I plan on appropriating it as my loungewear from here on out. Also, I don't know which was filmed first, Hellboy or Stranger Things season three, but like he was ripped in Hellboy. So that was quite a transformation back to the dad bot if that was the timeline here. 
Yeah, either he stuffed his face with some breadsticks of his own, maybe there's some latex going on, or he just, like, cut immediately after this to become Hellboy. But, you know, we're we're obviously sad that his franchise future didn't necessarily work out in his favor, but we are so glad to have the dad bod back in our lives. Um, This is Stranger Things, so we have to spend at least a couple segments sort of sifting through all the pop culture references that the Duffer brothers and their collaborators kind of weave into the fabric of the show. Our first category is just going to be best music cue. I know each of us had a couple of nominations. Miles, would you like to get it started with your favorite extremely 80s music sync? Oh, the best one is when Eleven outside the mall says, I dump your ass to Mike, and then immediately Foreigner's Cold as Ice plays. Just a perfect moment. Shortly before that, uh, Max and Eleven have a classic like makeover mall shopping sequence. Uh, I do prefer this very strongly to either Elle donning that like dirty pink dress in the wig in season one and that like cringy mirror pretty scene that we don't have to talk about ever again (laughs) or her like warriors-esque runaway like slick back leather jacket and smudge makeup look from last season which was like a good temporary fit but she's maturing into her own style. I really like the way Max talks about it and is like, you need to find something that looks like you. She finds this like really cool, like graphic jumper situation. But while they are searching for this, Madonna's material girl plays while they are running around the mall and getting their pictures taken and swinging by the gap. And it's great. I'm sure it was basically 50% of the budget for the entire episode, (laughs) but it is well, well used. I was going to say, because like, I don't really have a good grasp on like, which songs from like certain, you know, artists are more expensive than others. All I really know is Led Zeppelin is supposed to be hella expensive. So Madonna, that was probably a, a pricey one. I just think it is by far the most recognizable. And it's pretty on the nose, like having Material Girl playing while you are shopping for material items oh, yeah. is, you know, maybe not the most subtle cue, but it it makes a lot of sense. And it's just such a like top line pop anthem that I can't imagine. Like, there, there are some slightly deeper cuts in this episode that contribute to the period feeling a little more. And this is just, like, 80s, Madonna, shopping, <laughs> go. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was great. Um, And they basically played the whole song, so maybe they're just getting their money's worth. But That's they true. really stepped up their 80s game, at least in the first three episodes on the music side. I also thought the choice of makeout jams for Mike and Eleven was really good. It was... You know, just classic, like, schmaltzy, over-the-top. The The first one is Never Surrender. The second one is Can't Fight This Feeling. I, It's probably for the best that this was cut off, but I'm sure they had, like, so many alternates planned out for future Mike and Elle, you know, bedroom shenanigans. It was just... Really well, she dumped his ass, so maybe exactly. Not. <laughs> it just really conjured the feeling of like making um, a really schmaltzy mixtape that's like unsubtle and filled with like I don't even know Marvin Gaye or something, but like in an extremely eighties way. Yeah, I, I also appreciated the use of uh, American Pie at the end of the third episode when Heather and Billy drug and kidnap uh, Heather's parents. Um, fun use of that song. Yeah, it's also weirdly not a song I think of as being super 80s. Like, it obviously is period appropriate, but it's not quite the same level of, like, Material Girl or the hair metal we see at other points of the episode. It's just like, oh, yeah, like, this technically was period appropriate and and has the properly ironic context for um, a nice American family being drugged and kidnapped by their teenage children. Yeah, no, not not the best look. Um, 
But yeah, so also, so the dad is the um, editor-in-chief, I guess, of the Hawkins Post, which is apparently a small-town newspaper that is just thriving. That is a big staff. It is, but, you know, they just need to sit around and eat hamburgers and borderline sexually harass Nancy all day. So Also, I don't know if you caught this, but in the first episode, at one point during the editorial meeting, they were like, should we run the story on Iran? And I was like, you guys are the Hawkins Post. What are you doing? Yeah, I have some questions about their journalistic practices. We should also, we kind of forgot to check in on uh, Jonathan and Nancy. Uh, They're clearly having sex and sneaking around like a good, you know, high, I guess post high school. I guess they graduated, but um, they are both interns at the Hawkins Post. Nancy is trying to be a reporter. It is forced to be a de facto secretary who all the editors demeaningly call Nancy Drew. And Jonathan is trying to keep his head down and not cause trouble and just be a photographer and work in the dark room and constantly have his uh, developments ruined by people <laughs> opening the door. Mostly Nancy uh, opening the door. Yeah, but it seems like they're doing like a borderline Me Too-ish commentary thing where Nancy is being not taken seriously in her office and Jonathan is being like sort of supportive but not really understanding it. So they're kind of setting up some relationship conflict later on, but I would just oh, like yeah. to say, you know, believe women. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, also, um, I, I, I'm going to nitpick here because I used to freelance for like a local Capitol Hill-specific newspaper in D.C. Shout out Hill Rag. And um, you you can write a story about virtually anything that's going on for a small town paper. So the fact that they don't even want her to pursue this weird rat thing is so absurd to me. Um, so yeah, I, we don't even have a picking nit section, but I was like, that's that's my nitpick. I wrote once about a guy complaining about his Verizon service. Like you can write about anything at small town papers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess this is still the day as a physical only media, so they have a finite amount of space. Also, the advent of this Starcourt Mall has depleted all of downtown and all of the small businesses. So I would not be surprised if the Hawkins Post is next because those businesses, I'm sure, give them advertising dollars. So that's true. You know, they're they're riding high on the hog <laughs> and complaining about no mustard on their hamburgers for now. But we will see how long that lasts. This brings us to just a list of the most 80s moments we're going to close out the episode with. It's Stranger Things. We have to do it. I think the mall is a good place to start because that's really the focus. I do think there's like a funny, like Carrie Elwes's mayor character literally says the C word and is like, it's just good old fashioned American capitalism. Never mind that it's, you know, ruining the civic character of our downtown. But I do think Stranger Things has uh, joined the DSA and is doing a little <laughs> bit of commentary on, you know, 80s. The 80s are associated with becoming a lot more corporate and a lot more homogenized. And I think the mall really represents a lot of that, especially, you know, brands that survive to this day, albeit in somewhat tarnished form, like JCPenney and The Gap and Orange Julius and Hot Dog on a Stick. And I feel like we are not children of the 80s, but I'm sure both of us spent a lot of time in malls growing up. So this is heavily nostalgic for me personally. Yeah, uh, weirdly, I really didn't have much of a mall experience growing up. Uh, I, I grew up overseas, so like we didn't really have much of a mall culture except when I lived in Panama in middle school. But uh, that—that's okay. why I actually... My, Miles is too fancy. No, for this. no, I'm I, sorry. I, no. It was just it, it's no, but I find it really interesting because like anytime like I would visit like my grandparents or whatever in like Virginia, like I feel like mall culture was still like a big thing in like the late '90s. Yeah, I mean, for those 
listeners who are located in Los Angeles, this reminded me a lot of the Glendale Galleria, which is like a very old-fashioned mall that still exists in a suburb of L.A. called Glendale. But it's right next to like a much newer mall called the Americana. And I feel like now we're at this weird flux moment where like malls are kind of coming back, but they're this very like luxury branded. L.A. also has the Grove and like the Westfield Century City. And they're these like gleaming billion dollars, super shiny and new. Whereas like I grew up in the sort of like tarnished, tacky, Abercrombie and Fitch, like weird (laughs) fountains that had dolphins in them. Like that's what I want from my mall experience. And this is what Stranger Things is delivering to me. Although what I saw, it was kind of like dated in a fun way. And this is like brand new and fun. And that's why everyone is hanging out on there as in there as opposed to on Main Street. But um, also in the mall, there is a jazzercise studio <laughs> that Steve and Dustin uh, get a get a nice look inside of. So that was a, a fun is, moment. Is jazzer th- jazzercise still a thing or has that uh, gone extinct? Uh, no, Miles. Now we use class pass and we do yoga and Pilates and all those fun bougie things. I'm sure they're all the same level of like some level of pseudoscience on top of the basic, like, yeah, if you just move your body around, that's probably good for you. (laughs) But mostly I'm just very sad because we no longer wear uh, bright colored leggings and leotards and those just incredible, like, Richard Simmons-type work outfits are tragically a thing of the past. That is a tragedy. Also, uh, we got some new Coke at the mall. Um, Ill-fated new Coke. Um... Was, I think also, isn't that what they're drinking at the pool? They are, yeah. So it's it's clearly like the backlash hasn't started in Hawkins yet. People are still drinking their Coca-Cola. Not, not yet. Maybe it'll have a reckoning after the Mind Player stuff is taken care of. But mm-hmm. um, we also had a Day of the Dead screening. Obviously, that seems like a pretty specific choice considering the Mind Flayer has suddenly um, scooping up people left and right to do his bidding. So uh, I guess watch that space. <laughs> Yeah, kids are just loving it, by the way. Not freaked out at all. Uh, Just super psyched to see some zombies. (laughs) There's also a moment where Joyce has kind of a a sad alone time where she's missing uh, Bob, R.I.P. Yeah. But she's specifically flashing back to when they used to watch Cheers together and uh, Sam and Diane and Bob is like, I can't, I wish they would just get back together, which is just uh, classic will they, won't they, you know? Yeah, also a very deeply relatable sad TV dinner from Joyce. Like, I've had so many of those. I don't know, my TV dinners are anything but sad. I don't know about you. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. No, I'm more like uh, The Rock, where I just dramatically take photos of giant steaks in front of a little laptop and show it off on Twitter. Exactly. I, I have no idea why he does that, by the way. Like, The Rock, you can afford, like, a huge TV, but, you know, he's got his laptop. He's right it's there. It's convenient. You know, it's right there. You don't have to, like, worry about the furniture. You can just eat it at the table. That's true. I guess, you know, if I was rich, I would I would do it differently. But, you know what? I'm not going to question The Rock. Jumanji 3 looks great. Um, speaking <laughs> of throwbacks. Um, also, we got, uh, like I said before, we got the Red Dawn vibe with the Russians. Um Another 80s classic. Um, we will not speak of the 2012 version with North Korean Enemy starring Chris Hemsworth and Josh Peck. Oh, my God. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. No, 80s nostalgia is just very in all over the place, not just in Stranger Things. That's true because we also got Ralph Macchio, uh, you know, Karate Kid spread in the magazine that Max and Love were looking over. And now he's back for Cobra Kai. <laughs> yes, I did think specifically of you when that reference showed up. But it, also, It was very exciting. I mean, honestly, like, the most Stranger Things thing to do would be to cast him in a cameo in, like, season four. But until then, 
we're just looking over what we have here. And then I I also included Maya Hawk, who I mentioned before, is kind of like a human 80s throwback, <laughs> although I think she's doing a great job just as an actress establishing her own character. But I think that's obviously a very meta bit of casting on Stranger Things part. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so this brings us to the end of the first three episodes of Stranger Things. We will be back tomorrow to talk about episode four through episode six. I'm guessing that things are going to only get worse and more dire for the citizens of Hawkins, and we will see some things develop. But for now, it's just time to frolic by the pool and chill out. So until then, Miles, thank you so much. 